This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of June 12, 2017, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 433 of Defender Radio. Wildlife corridors are becoming beautiful and iconic scientific feats that show our ability to coexist with animals when we put our minds to it. And the Trans-Canada Highway through Banff National Park is perhaps the best example of that. Twinning of the highway, or doubling its width, began in 1981, and with it, a bold plan to make it safer for animals to get across the busy highway. Today, more than 40 corridors of multiple designs serve the animals, and the latest research is highlighting the incredible success of the program managed by Parks Canada. Wildlife collisions have reduced by more than 80% and almost 90% for various ungulates such as deer, moose, and bighorn sheep. In 1996, scientists began monitoring the crossings, and that voluminous data set shows successful behavioral adaptations, improved or maintained genetic diversity, and a halting to ecological fragmentation. To discuss the monitoring, what scientists are learning, and why the results matter, Defender Radio was joined by Ecological Integrity Monitoring Coordinator for Parks Canada, Derek Peterson. Why why did the animal cross the road? Maybe that's the 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 overly obvious place that we should start. Why are animals going across? Sure. Well, I mean, if you think about a natural landscape before humans embedded ourselves into it, it would have been one contiguous uh, span of of available habitat for wildlife species, and they would, you know, pick and choose according to their needs. So there would be no barriers to their movements. Um, Any mortality source to them would be from natural causes and, you know, most often obviously predators. And so when we started putting our human infrastructure on the landscape, especially our road networks, um, you know, one, we created barriers to, we essentially started separating and segregating habitat into smaller blocks. Um, And then, you know, animals that were used to accessing habitats in a broader area, then we're confronted with this transportation corridor, and it could be either railway or or highway. Um, And with the the traveling vehicles, then obviously their habitat then became fragmented, plus there was also the potential of mortality when they were trying to cross the road and access some of those habitats, which they had traditionally done for, you know, for generations. Well, and that's something that we're we're hearing more and more about is fragmentation as a serious ecological harm, um, mm-hmm. both for the, the the obvious mortality of of simply crossing roads uh, and landscapes like that, but also everything from how woodlots interact with the rest of an ecosystem. I remember re- reading a lot about that several years ago. Um, you know, there would be in a municipality they'd set aside. Okay, well, this is going to be a parkland. This is going to be a woodlot, but they mm-hmm. wouldn't connect to anything. And mm-hmm. sure enough, over time, and it may not be in five years, maybe in 50 years, but that woodlot would very then very quickly start to die off mm-hmm. uh, because there was no connectivity to the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. If you just have a bunch of small isolated patches, they just become become unu- in, either inaccessible or unusable for the wildlife species. Yeah, and 
Now, in, in the case of, you know, Banff National Park, we're looking at huge areas of lands with sig- relatively significant highways going through them. Um, so how how do we identify then that, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe we'll sort of go on, how do we identify which animals need to be using these crossings and how do we sort of sort that out? Because, you know, one of the, the very early comments I heard about this in a very negative way was that, well, we're just going to create tunnels and the wolves or the coyotes or the bears are going to sit and lay in wait um, and make like some kind of like slaughterhouse. Uh, <laughs> but that that isn't what happens. So h- how does all of this knowledge we have about sort of ecology then play into these at times relatively small pieces of tunnel? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things with just general wildlife observations and, and an understanding of, of ecological needs of a variety of species, you can, you can sort of understand what their, their general landscape habitat needs are, and you can start to map those out on the landscape, and then you can identify, you know, which are the key, key habitat areas that need to be connected, and that can in some way influence where you wish to put in your highway mitigations. Um, another big part of the study was just looking at mortality strikes on the highway, so looking at, at the historical records of, of wildlife vehicle collisions, obviously, and then plotting those through GIS on maps, and you, you tend to come up with some hotspots, which are indicative of areas that are naturally used by animals from crossing, for crossing one side of, of the highway to the other. And so that gives you some indication of, okay, this is a probable spot where animals would, go, would want to go naturally. You also look at the terrain, and there's certainly a number of environmental variables that were considered when, when in the planning stages for identifying which locations the crossing, crossing structures should go in. You know, tying in crossing structures to, to uh, landscape drainages especially was a key, was a key thing. Um, and certain species, you know, have different needs for, for their crossing, some like, some like wide open um, areas where they can, you know, see other animals, especially predators. Some some animals prefer um, accessing a crossing structure that's that's heavily forested, so they have cover right up to the point of of entering a crossing structure. So, a whole host of of both environmental and structural variables were considered in the in the planning stage before you know anything any shovels hit the ground as far as actual mitigations being built. Well, and now that those have been built, uh, and that will be covered in a separate interview, the the sort of more engineering side of things, um, it's the the numbers are hard to really sort of grapple with, and I think this is what really makes the work you and Parks Canada are doing very unique. Is you know one one thing I've read is um, that you've reduced wildlife vehicle collisions and mortality of over. Uh, by over 80% and nearly 90% for ungulates. So that's going to be our deer, moose, caribou. Um, and just in 2016, or sorry, through 2016, uh, there were 165,734 individual animal crossings. Um, mm-hmm. of, of seven seven large mammal species. Yeah, in the, in the 17 years that, that have the Trans-Canada Highway was monitored. Yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable, although I'm pretty sure when I, I have spent time in Toronto, I've seen that many raccoons go through backyards. But <laughs> um, I, 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 I kind of have to ask, how do you even start 
when when you as the person who is monitoring this data, who is reviewing this data, when you have numbers of this volume, how do you begin to break that down into, I, I'd say, almost like usable information? Yeah. So they again, you know, we inherited the the ongoing monitoring program, which is what we're continuing to this day and will continue on into the future. Um, but the the research, so the actual twinning the highway construction aspect started you know, way back in 1988 and the research actually started in 1996 and there were three phases of research between 1996 and 2014. Uh, the first five years between 96 and 2002, um, I mean, have some pretty simple objectives. One was this combination of highway crossing structures and wildlife exclusion fencing actually reducing mortality. So that was a you know a key question. That was one of the principal objectives of the of the project initially, um, and corollary to that was one of the main objectives of the whole pro of the twinning project. Um, you know, is essentially to reduce the, the human mortality on the highway as well and the human injury and uh, vehicle damage, etc., both from wildlife vehicle collisions and from just general vehicle-vehicle uh, -vehicle accidents. So certainly that was a key objective. Um, but yeah, so looking at does does this combination fencing and crossing structure uh, reduce highway mortality? Um, are the structures being used? I mean, this, this was a big question. Parks Canada certainly wasn't the first agency um, in the world to, to, to sort of begin um, designing and building crossing structures. There were certainly some, some efforts over in Europe that uh, were, were considered at the time varying things and some limited work in the United States as well, but um, certainly in the scope that Parks Canada took it on was, was the first in the world. So yeah, so were, were the structures being used? How were different species using those structures? And you know, were there differences in, in how species selected? Were different species using different kinds of structures? And there were seven, seven different structures that were used that are in use on the Trans-Canada Highway. So again, the program was looking at, at trying to facilitate, again, the, the 11 large mammal species that we document um, through our monitoring, um, you know, but, but there's an additional host of species that use the structures that just aren't our focus. And so they wanted to try a whole suite of different structures, anywhere from uh, 1.6 meter culvert up to our 60-meter overpasses, and uh, then again, you know, looking at okay, how are animals using those different kinds of structures, and how does that change over time? So those were some key questions of that first round of uh, research, and how can that information be used for for subsequent design work and planning of, of future twinning? You know, both. Uh, within Bath National Park, but certainly elsewhere in the world, this information became of critical value to to a number of agencies who were were just recognizing the need to do similar <clears throat> kinds of mitigations. Having this information available to the world is of vital interest. And you know, there's one stat I know of in 2007 in British Columbia, uh, the province spent almost a million dollars on just removal of animal carcasses um from the highways that they uh, they they monitor and operate that does not include the insurance cost that does not include the cost of actual you know the the moral or yeah exactly or ecological damage to the the animals to the people to the road itself uh so we're talking mm. millions of dollars 
uh, at yep. stake here every year. And again, on a larger highway that is full of people surrounded by wildlife, you, you can only imagine that that number just skyrockets. Um, uh, I, well, you can imagine a major thoroughfare like the Trans-Canada Highway. And the, the stats we have, there's you know one vehicle, well, there's between 17 and, and 30,000 vehicles a day, which equates to one vehicle roughly every three seconds. Wow. So you, you could imagine if you're a sensitive wildlife species standing on one side of, of a four-lane divided highway, thinking, there's, I mean, pre-mitigation, but thinking you you want and need to get to the other side for a variety of reasons, how how imposing that would be. Well, and, you know, this is where it gets, to me, very fun kind of to think about, is how do these different animals use the structures? Uh, because, again, you know, my initial thought would be, well, a deer isn't going to want to go into a tunnel. Right? They like the big open spaces, um, and they're going to be afraid of predators. But um, uh, uh, the majority of the animals you are monitoring are ungulates. Uh, you've got white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, moose, uh, mountain goats, bighorn sheep uh, listed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the Latin names because I'll just embarrass both of us. Um, <laughs> so why are these animals... Uh, particularly the the prey species using these things that and it seems counterintuitive that they would. Yeah, and I, get, I mean certainly again that's where part of the selection comes in because with that range of seven seven crossing structures, you know, again the overpasses are, are one one option, but a number of them are are what are called an open span underpass. So which mostly relate to you know if you think of driving any highway, whenever there's a river crossing or anything, you'll have those big open steel structures. Um, a number of those were retrofitted to have kind of a terrestrial walkway um, adjacent to the water course. So it combined both, you know, the needs to the need for aquatic connectivity, but it also provided the, the terrestrial bridge underneath those. So if you think of those and then cement box culverts and scaling down from there to metal culverts, anything from a four meter by seven meter to, as I mentioned, the 1.6 meter. So again, the, you know, the variety of, of uh, options for animals to, to, uh, to select. And that certainly, well, it changed over time for some species. We certainly found initially that, that certain species favored certain crossing structures and uh, I mean, things like grizzly bears, wolves, and moose certainly favored the open, the overpasses, sort of the wide open. Um, and then black bears and cougars favored the more, the more covered, smaller underpass kinds of structures. And it seems like deer, deer and the ungulates didn't really show a preference um, too much to to particular crossing types, which again might seem somewhat counterintuitive, but that seemed to be what the what the data was showing. And what was really found out was that actually structure type trumps location, which was interesting. Again, you know, a person might have thought that sort of environmental variables would be the key driver in crossing structure use, but it actually deter- it was actually determined that the, the type of structure, again, as I mentioned, trumped location, which was a, a, a result that wasn't I think initially predicted. Well, yeah, you would think that the environmental factor, such as okay, well, this is a clear opening, uh, or there's a lot of trees here, so they're not going to bolt from one side to the other, or all of these, you know, various things would 
uh, or even I, I would guess sort of if you have any sort of slightly lowered roadway with uh, the, the, the environment sloping upwards away from it. All of these things you would think are what would cause an animal to want to cross. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're really adapting to the available resource, just like they would any other resource, I guess. Yeah, and they're really, I mean, they, they're seeking out the crossing structures. And so again, you know, what might not have been their a perfect location for their seem to be perfectly comfortable with with shifting their movement slightly. And, and remember, we have, you know, 82 kilometers of highway and 44 crossing structures. So I think that's what, about 1.6. So just about every mile, there's some kind of crossing structure. Again, not all of those meet all species needs, but um, there certainly is a, you know, a, that's why I guess we can report that that this stretch of mitigated highway has the most crossing structures and and fencing anywhere on the planet, um, just because of that density of of both. And it was interesting that on phase three B, which was the last section completed um, from what's called Castle Junction to to the Continental Divide, the VC Alberta border, um, there were underpasses put in first, and certainly bears navigated to those right away. But as soon as the overpasses adjacent to those were completed, crossing shifted immediately to the overpass structures. And so it shows a clear um, sort of preference for, again, by grizzly bears for those, those wide open overpass structures. Now, do you think this is the kind of data, um, and while this, this may not be sort of your subject uh, of study, that others can take this data and then start learning about the species themselves as a result? Uh, yeah, I and mean, it certainly provides, and you know, there were a number of other studies done as well for this project because the, the kind of the barrier, the fragmentation effects of highways fragment both habitats, so it fragments kind of food availability from that perspective, but it also fragments genetic interchange, which is able to, to, to wildlife resilience over time. And so there were a couple of studies done, one focusing on on bears and one focusing on wolverines um, that looked at that whole DNA question and found some interesting results. I mean, certainly the conclusion was that for bears, there was no genetic barrier created by the mitigated highway, which was certainly good news. And then for wolverine, there was some impact to female dispersal, but not to genetic or not to uh, male, male movement. So and male, there was enough male movement to, to create the sort of the ge- genetic diversity that's necessary in a healthy population. So again, the mitigated, um, the mitigations proved effective in dealing with that, that uh, genetic barrier effect that roads can create. Yeah, and uh, the lack of genetic uh, variation and diversity is is a, a big problem when we're looking at conservation, of course. Uh, and that can, you know, influence the way disease spreads. Um, it can influence birth rates, declines, adaptil... Adap- adap- uh, I can't talk anymore. Adaptil... Nope. I'm going to let you say this word for me. The ability to adapt. <laughs> Adaptability? There it is. Adaptability. There we go. I, I, that happens probably once a week to me. I just, I hit a word and it's not there. It was philosophical hey, last week. I couldn't say it. There uh, we go. Fortunately, I had another scientist on the phone who said it for me. It, it seems to work out that way. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that um, worked. 
And I think two of interest. And I I don't I don't know if this was covered in in your your study. You you focused on these large mammals, um, but we're also then looking at the small mammals that are going to be crossing. Um, you know, insects, amphibians. You mentioned having waterways open. Uh, all of this creates a wonderful connectivity, which is a major, major issue these days. Um, is there any way to quantify the environmental benefit, not just to the animals, but to the ecosystem as a whole from having connectivity uh, over, under, and through uh, major highways? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, we pick up an so our monitoring system now is based on remote cameras. You know, it started way back when they would look at technology wasn't quite as advanced, so they used simple things like track pads, um, winter tracking, of course. Um, some camera work, they'd look at, at using strands of barbed wire and they'd collect hair and, and look at DNA to identify crossing structures. Um, and now we've moved exclusively to, to remote wildlife cameras. And so, you know, obviously we collect data on whatever is moving through those structures and triggering our cameras. And so we get, beyond the sort of the 11 targeted species, we do get information on a, a suite of other species that are using those structures. We know that certainly the overpasses are important for, for bird movement across the highway. Um, some of the last mitigations in phase 3B uh, were tied to you know, there were different structures, different underpass structures designed to, to allow things like harlequin ducks to be able to fly, you know, fly up the rivers and cross under the highways that way, um, which is, again, you know, a, a species that hadn't been considered until that final phase. And now we're just, because we're up against, up at the continental divide and up higher in elevation, we're looking at a, a different, providing mitigations for a different suite of species and so most notably wolverine, lynx, and mountain goat. And there's just a current twinning project uh, the federal government announced just about $87 million for six kilometers of, of mitigated twinning in Yoho National Park, which is just on the other side of Banff into British Columbia. And so again, they're looking at a suite of, of crossing structures there that will accommodate Again, a different suite of species just because of the elevational change. So that's that's important. I guess back to your original question, my job, uh, my position with Parks Canada is to lead the Ecological Integrity Monitoring Program for Banff Hill and Cooney National Parks. So we have we have a suite of 15 ecological measures that we track over time. And so I guess some of those larger questions of kind of the ecological health of some of our key natural resources, um, that data is collected through this broader EI monitoring program. And if if we were to, to uh, especially, it's kind of intended to be a bit of a canary in the coal mine. And if we identify that there are problems with some of our natural resources, then that suggests follow-up research to try and determine the cause and effect for that. So if we were seeing major declines um, in some of our wildlife populations that we're monitoring, then we would certainly go back and look at, okay, is, are the transportation corridors, you know, potentially some part of that, that decline? And then we would look at mitigations in that way. And I guess 
conversely, the other way, if, if our if our populations are doing well, we would look at, at we would consider the causes for for those for the situation, and you know I suspect that our mitigated highways would would be a major player in in uh, that positive outcome. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a significant environmental change. Um, so if you're seeing positive growth and you're seeing, uh, you know, the, uh, in regarding the uh, genetic diversity, you're seeing it maintained or improved, then it is reasonable to assume that the mitigation is playing a role in it, uh, unless, you know, there's something other major going on, which I don't think there is. Um, yeah. And no, that's certainly it. And just, you know, having dealt with the highway mortality in such a significant way, and that obviously, mm-hmm. and I think... If that's over the the entire period. Certainly, there were a number of retrofits made um, to the fencing design after the the first phase was done. The first phase didn't have a buried apron, and there were initially problems with some car some smaller carnivores were able to dig under the fence and still access the highway. Mm. So, in in the subsequent phases, um, there's been a buried apron that's been part of the fencing design that has had a significant improvement on. I'm certainly addressing that fact from the first phase. So yeah, you know, it's a work, it's a learning, a learning process for everyone. Yep. And it'll be interesting for you to get Terry's perspective on, on that from, from a highway engineer. Absolutely. And that's also, I mean, that's kind of the scientific process in itself, right? Is it, 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 the adaptive process. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, have a hypothesis, try it out, observe the results and adapt. Um, now, one thing I did bring up, and I don't know if this has been looked at at all, uh, I think you can probably speak to it, is the the complaint or the assumption that predators are going to use these to lay in wait. Um, is there any evidence, just sort of straight out, that this is causing uh, uh, any kind of negative impact on that predator-prey relationship? No, I don't think the crossing structures are. I, I do believe, um, and I wasn't part of this study, but... I do believe there was an issue at a couple of locations um, of the highway fencing where it went, where it was put up in, in kind of what had been traditional escape territory for, for uh, bighorn sheep. Mm. I think the carnivores for a short period figured out that there was an opportunity for them to basically corner, you know, they would force some of the bighorn sheep down to the fence line and essentially created a bit of a trap. Yeah. So there were a number of mitigations done, including putting um, kind of a visual barrier into the fence. So kind of that, that green screen netting you see often in, in locations where fencing has been done just to make it visually, make the big orange chief visually aware that the fence is there. And my understanding is that that, that uh, very adequately mitigated that, that, initial concern that's that's pretty I, it's one of these things where it's you you kind of you picture all of you guys sitting around the table and say why don't we just put a net up um yeah. you know like it's you're expecting some kind of really deep conversation but it was probably someone said oh let's try this uh, and you know i suspect it could be a rancher or a farmer somewhere in in who knows where that has done something like this for decades that and it's within the conservation community, the whole road, the whole science of road ecology has certainly grown in the last, well, two decades, mm-hmm. and much more conversation and sharing of information. And 
yeah, that's how these things get dealt with. Um, and then there was, there's one thing I wanted to check on. There was uh, a story earlier this year around Canmore. I believe this is the provincial uh, uh, wildlife corridors. There were concerns that people are using them, um, particularly people with off-leash dogs. Um, has this been an issue for Parks Canada in and around Banff? Uh no, more so in the fact that most of our crossing structures, all of the overpasses, there's no no human access allowed, and most of the underpasses as well, with the exception of just a couple of underpasses that have that have recognized um, kind of historical recreational access across the Trans Canada Highway, and that has been been maintained. Um, but again, certainly a, a large communication program happens simultaneously with with the highway mitigations, um, just advising people of the, the sensitivity of these structures and the need for for allowing wildlife to use them unencumbered by by uh, public use. All right. So that's, I mean, that would be a, a, an obvious concern, I think. And I know um, in my old community of Oakville, Ontario, there's a lot of talk about introducing some of the small-scale uh, corridors and that's obviously a sort of a concern. I think it's it's probably more concern in these urban settings, um, or at least in the more traditionally accessed uh, park settings. Whereas you're dealing on the Trans Canada Highway, where pulling over is against the law, as far as I know, in most locations. So um, I, I imagine it's probably simply just not something you're going to see very often. Um, no, and with you know with the fencing, um, you know, it's not there's not. Well, there are certainly gates to make those sites accessible for for us and our monitoring, and for a variety of of maintenance and other reasons. But yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of public activity. There's not a lot of easy access to the crossing structures. And again, that's part of the design considerations that go into both the the locations, the structures, and the the fencing. Absolutely, um, and I think to wrap up, the the question has to be kind of what now. I mean, we're, we are, I don't think anyone can debate based on the evidence that you're producing that these, uh, these uh, crossings don't work. I mean, we're seeing a, a massive reduction in wildlife ve- uh, vehicle collisions with mortality rates plummeting, which is significant in and of itself, both economically and ecologically. Uh, we're seeing that genetic diversity is including. We are presuming that, you know, the uh, based on, again, that genetic diversity, the drop in mortality and so on, and healthy populations on both sides, that the ecosystem as a whole may be improving. So what's next in terms of the research? Is it continuing to watch this and adapt as we go? Or are you going to be looking in new directions? Uh, well, we've committed to, to maintain the, the camera monitoring system um, just because... You know, with the we're now at 21 years in this data set, and long-term data sets are quite rare in in the ecological world, and so we've made the commitment that we will continue with the ongoing monitoring of the crossing structures. Again, just to look at long-term changes in in either species or levels of use. Um, certainly, information is being used to. To plan for other mitigations, as I mentioned, you know, both within Parks Canada and and uh, across the world, this information is providing guidance for that. We've used it for a small section of highway we mitigated in in Kootenai National Park, a 15-kilometer section there that was finished last year. So that information has been transported. 
you know, I guess the what we will continue to do is just because as we move westward with the twinning, as I mentioned, we're moving into a different suite of species and we're moving into different ecosystem types into uh, Yoho National Park in British Columbia. So it's important to continue to initiate the monitoring when we do the highway mitigations just to pick up, again, different species or different ecosystems to make sure that these mitigations are working as effectively there as they have been shown to work in Bath National Park. To find out more about the work being done with wildlife corridors by Parks Canada, visit pc.gc.ca. That's it for this week, folks. I want to thank Derek for sharing his time and remind all of you that the second part of this episode series will be available next Tuesday, where we talk more about wildlife corridors with a Parks Canada engineer who's been involved with the projects since the 1980s. Until then, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.